Well, please do have open Psalm 87 in the Bible so that you can have a look at that as we go through that over the next minutes together. Psalm 87 is our text, and this psalm wants to excite us. It wants to get us excited about being a citizen of the heavenly city, Zion. And so if we leave this evening without having a greater sense of joy, a greater sense of privilege, a greater sense of blessing at being a citizen of the heavenly Zion, then we have not heard this word aright. That's what this psalm wants to do for us this evening. That's what the Lord wants to do for us through this psalm. And so let's have a look at Psalm 87 together. Uh, we just were on holiday, as some of you know, and got back uh, a week and a half ago or so. And when we travel as a family, it's a big undertaking. Uh, some of you know us, others don't. We have seven children, and so we don't travel uh, lightly. But we got to go back, a wonderful blessing, to the United States, which is home for us this past uh, few weeks. And when we were returning to London, we always have the same routine. We we gird up our, our loins, we get ourselves ready because we have to go through passport control once we get off the plane. We've been flying all night. Kids may or may not have slept. We don't sleep. And we get in that long, winding queue to passport control. And I pull out the nine passports and the nine biometrics cards, and I triple-check them and make sure we've got them ready to go through. And we sort of hope and pray that something happens. Sometimes we have a nosebleed or something, and it gets attention, and then we get to kind of shoot around the queue once in a while. But this time that didn't happen. The queue was moving along, and I had the passports in hand. We got up to the desk. I gave them to the gentleman behind the desk, and he began flicking through them and asking the questions that he asks. And he realized that although we all travel on U.S. passports, that actually our family has been born in various places all over the world. So we're Americans, and my wife and I and our eldest three boys were born in the United States, but then we had three children in Sydney, Australia, and then we had one daughter here in England. And so we've got a variety of places that our family were born But all of us share American citizenship. A variety of places we were born, but all the same citizenship. And that, brothers and sisters, is what this psalm holds out to us this evening. That all who turn to the Lord Jesus Christ and belong to him are born in Zion, according to the Lord's register, his book of life, each one written in there, This one was born in Zion. So we're going to see how that works in this psalm tonight. And I want us to think about it in these terms. This psalm really teaches us that the citizens of Zion celebrate in the city of their God. The citizens of Zion celebrate in the city of their God. We're going to begin by looking at what this city of Zion is. We'll move on to think about what it means and what's needed to be a citizen of Zion. And then we'll finally finish by thinking about what it looks like to celebrate as one who lives as a citizen in that heavenly city of Zion. So first of all, the city of Zion. What is going on in this psalm when it says, verses 1 and 2, On the holy mount stands the city he founded. The Lord loves the gates of Zion more than all the dwelling places of Jacob. Where is Zion? And what is this psalm about? 
Well, most would say that this seems to be a psalm that may have been chanted or sung as worshippers were heading up the mountain to the temple in Jerusalem. Now, the, the Bible calls Jerusalem, calls the city of Jerusalem a mountain, even though if you've ever been to the land of Israel, Palestine, you've maybe been to Jerusalem, you realize it's more of a hill, perhaps. But it is a hill. It's accentuated by valleys around either side, and it runs as uh, there's, a, there's a ridge that runs down the center of Israel, and it's part of that ridge. And so as the people were processing up the holy hill, up the mountain to worship in the temple, this may have been one of those songs that they were singing about what they were going to do. They were headed to the temple on the mount in Jerusalem to worship. And that is a clue for us in understanding what Zion is. Zion is the Lord's holy city founded on his mountain. It is Jerusalem in the Old Testament. Jerusalem is Zion. But this psalm is going to point us to the fact that no longer, no longer do we have to pick up our belongings and move to the land of Israel-Palestine and live in the city of Jerusalem in order to be registered as a citizen of Zion. That's no longer the case since the work of our Lord Jesus Christ. We'll see how that is exactly the case. So think of this psalm as a processional chant or song of praise headed up to the very temple of the Lord to worship him as one of his people. And can you see how the psalm divides itself? It divides itself roughly into three short sections. First of all, we've got verses 1 to 3, and you can see how that's marked by this little word, Selah. We don't know exactly what that means, but it's a kind of marker of a refrain. It might mean stand up. It might mean shout amen. We're not exactly sure what it means, but it's a clear marker. Verses 1 to 3 form a unit that teach us about this city of Zion. And then verses 4 to 6 continue. And they talk about the citizens of this city of Zion. And finally, verse 7, after a second Selah, comes as the tail end of this verse. And this is what uh, we're going to see teaches us about the celebration of those who live in Zion. So three sections that are ordering our approach to understanding this psalm tonight. Verses 1 to 3, then 4 to 6, and finally verse 7. And in verses 1 to 3, as we've seen, Zion stands as the city that the Lord loves. It is the city on his holy mountain. This language taps into very deep waters in Scripture. Right through the Bible, there is a wonderful and major theme of the city of God that rests on a mountain, the mountain of God. In fact, in many ways, These are the bookends of the entire biblical story. Because Eden itself, if we go all the way back to Genesis chapter 2, is described in terms that are picked up by later prophets in the Old Testament as a city with boundaries on four sides, rivers, in which the Lord dwells. It's a city, but it's also a garden, and it's kind of a temple as well. So if you go back to Genesis chapter 2, you begin to hear all kinds of things in the description of the Garden of Eden that will be picked up and resonate and amplified as we read on through Scripture. Eden was a city, garden, temple, and it was on the mountain of God, we're told throughout the Old Testament. That's the beginning of the story. 
to worship God as one of his people in his presence is to be in the Lord's presence on the mountain of God, Zion itself. And what do we find, text that Johnny just read for us, in Revelation 21 and 22, at the very end of the biblical story, don't we find again a very high mountain? In fact, it's the heavenly city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven, and it too is described in terms of a city, a garden, a temple to which the nations flow. And so the entire story of Scripture, in many ways, is framed in the language that we find here in this text of Psalm 87, that all things began on the mountain of God in the presence of God, and all things will end on the mountain of God in the presence of God. But this psalm helps us understand what is required to be registered as one of God's people, so that when we come to that mountain of Revelation 21, we know that we belong to him. And we are not those who will be turned away at the gates because no unclean thing can enter into that heavenly city of Zion. So the city of Zion is a major, major theme that taps in to the teaching of Scripture right from the beginning on. If you turn to Second Samuel, if you've got a Bible there, you keep it one finger, if you would, in Psalm 87. But you might just turn back to Second Samuel, 2 Samuel, chapter 5, verse 7. And here we see the very first time in the Bible where Jerusalem is named Zion. And the reason for this is because it becomes the center of worship for the people of God from this point forward, where God's very presence dwells, where the tabernacle is then going to be made into the temple after Solomon takes over the reign from David. But here in 2 Samuel chapter 5, verse 7, we read this, and when the men of Ashdod saw how, sorry, this is not the right text, I'm in, I'm in 1 Samuel, forgive me, Second Samuel, chapter 5, verse 7, I'll begin verse 6, actually, and the king and his men went to Jerusalem against the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land, who said to David, you will not come in here, but the blind and the lame will ward you off, thinking David cannot come in here. Nevertheless, verse 7, David took the stronghold of Zion, that is, the city of David. First time that Jerusalem is so clearly identified in Scripture with Zion. And that's precisely because this is the point which David captures the city from the Jebusites. Jerusalem wasn't always Israel's. And it's going now to become the center of worship where the king, Yahweh's king, is installed on the holy mountain. And the temple is going to be built. And the people are going to come and worship the Lord on this holy mountain. So Jerusalem becomes Zion. And it continues to be called that as we read on through the Old Testament. Let me just take you to one other text that uh, helps us understand how this works. This is in the prophet Isaiah. So again, keep a finger in Psalm 87, if you would, and turn to Isaiah chapter 2. Isaiah chapter 2. We'll pick it up at verse 2 of Isaiah 2. This is speaking of what will happen at the last days, a prophecy given to Isaiah for the people to tell them what would take place on that day when the Lord returns in power to save his people. And it says, verse 2, It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established. Do you hear all of that same kind of language that we find in our psalm? The language of mountain, of established, of the place where God's temple is, where he's to be worshipped. 
The mountain of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it and many people shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation. Neither shall they learn war any more. O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. Zion, the mountain of God, the place where God would be worshipped by his people, gathered to himself at that last day, to worship the glory of our King. It's a theme that runs right through the Old Testament and right into the New Testament. Because we know that there is a major shift that happens, don't we, in relation to temple worship located on that hill in Jerusalem. When we turn into the pages of the New Testament, we're told that no longer after Jesus life, death, and resurrection, is it necessary to go to physical, literal Jerusalem in the Middle East in order to worship him? Instead, Jesus himself reveals himself to be the true temple. Have a look at John chapter 2. John chapter 2, the Gospel of John. Chapter 2. Now, this was something for many of the Jews at the time, very unexpected and, in fact, caused a great and not entirely positive reaction. But here's what Jesus says in John 2, verse 18 and following. So the Jews said to Jesus, what sign do you show us for doing these things? How do we know you're real? How do we know we have to listen to you? And Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. And the Jews looked at him and they said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple. Do you see how they misunderstood what he's talking about? It's not Herod's temple. Right there, a beautiful stone gleaming building that took 46 years to construct that Jesus was talking about. It's himself. And that's what we're told in verse 21. But Jesus was speaking about the temple of his body. When, therefore, he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Do you see the major seismic shift that takes place on the pages of the Gospels as to where one goes to find God's presence in Zion? No longer do you go to physical Jerusalem. Now you go to the Lord Jesus Christ in order to be at the true temple, God's true temple, the place where God himself reveals his presence to you and welcomes you into his kingly, glorious presence. Now we go to the Lord Jesus. And that's exactly what happens on the following pages of the New Testament. Flip flip over just to uh, Acts chapter 2, if you would. Acts chapter 2. And we'll come back here in just a moment. For our second point. But in Acts chapter 2, we're told, in verse 5, there were now dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at the sound of this rushing wind that came upon them, the Holy Spirit, the multitude came together. 
And they were bewildered, each one hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these, thi- all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? People, Jews, that is, from all nations, gathered in Jerusalem for the, for the Feast of Pentecost, And instead of gathering and finding what they were looking for at the temple, Herod's temple, what do they find? Well, as chapter 2 goes on, as you may well be aware, they find as Peter stands up and proclaims the gospel to them of what Jesus Christ has done in his life, death, and resurrection, they find that instead of being invited to the temple, they are invited to come to the Lord Jesus. Look at chapter 2, verse 38. And Peter said to them, Repent. And be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And many of you will know that the entire narrative of Acts is one wonderful story of how this gospel begins to go out from Jerusalem. That God's presence in the gospel expands first into Judea and then Samaria and then on into the ends of the earth, gathering up men and women and children from every nation. No longer do they have to relocate or go on festival procession and journeys to the city of Jerusalem. Now they come by faith to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's how they come to the city of Zion. Well, let's think about this just for a moment in relation to ourselves. If the Bible teaches us that Zion is the city of God on the mountain of God, founded as the place where he gathers his people to worship him in glory and to receive his blessing, and if that is what we have in the Lord Jesus, then we have a wonderful gift from the Lord to contemplate. Because our text in Psalm 87 tells us that God himself has established Zion. He has founded it, verse 1. Its foundations are secure. It cannot be shaken. It cannot be moved. And if that is your city, then you can rejoice because that city will stand firm while all the cities of the world through time and history might crumble and be destroyed. Zion will stand firm. As we cling to the Lord Jesus, we will be established We will be protected. Verse 2 tells us uh, that that's the city that God loves. The Lord loves the gates of Zion. And the gates in the Old Testament often stand in place of the people who are enclosed in those gates. The Lord loves the people of Zion. He loves you as his children and will protect you. He will establish you when you come to this heavenly city of Zion by faith in Christ. And it also gives us a glimpse, doesn't it, of what the Lord's vision is for building up his church. Because the church is that place where the nations are invited through Christ to become citizens of this heavenly Zion. The Lord wants to build up Zion. He wants, as we'll see in the next section of our psalm, to invite men and women of every nation to be its citizens. 
So verse 3 tells us, as we will sing as we close later this evening, glorious things of you are spoken, Zion, city of our God. And in fact, literally, we could translate that as well, glorious things in you are spoken. There are a variety of views on what that might precisely indicate. Some think that this means that the promises of God, the glorious promises and blessings of God are spoken, echo in the walls of this city, and they are glorious to hear. That sinners can be saved by turning to the Lord Jesus Christ, and that's quite possible. It's also possible, however, and I think slightly preferable, to see in verse 3 that glorious things in you are spoken, Zion, city of our God. And then what do we get in verses 4 to 6? I think we get to hear some of those things that are being spoken in Zion. I think verses 4 to 6 are a reading out of the register that is gloriously read in Zion. So let's have a look at those verses. Verse 4, among those who know me, I mention Rahab and Babylon. Rahab in the Old Testament often stands for the nation of Egypt. Uh, it's, it's this image of God's enemy, the enemy of God's people. Sometimes the dragon, the monster of the sea who threatens God's people. But here it's clearly among the names of nations. And so we understand that Egypt is indicated by Rahab. Even Egyptians who have persecuted God's people down through time, even the Babylonians who carried off the people of Judah into exile, even from those nations will come people who belong to Zion and Zion's God. Behold, Philistia and Tyre. If you've read the Old Testament narratives of Samuel and Kings and Chronicles, who are the Philistines, the people that live in Philistia? Aren't they the arch enemy of King David, the ones who constantly are battling. The Philistines are the one, the ones uh, who send the giant to battle David, don't they? And David slays Goliath. He's a Philistine. And yet even from Philistia, even from Tyre, even from these coastal peoples who are hostile to Israel in the Old Testament, God has his people and he will bring them to himself. With Cush, we're told, verse 4, Cush, as some of your Bible notes might tell you, often means Ethiopia or that that land south of Egypt, where today, even today, if you travel down the Nile and you stand atop the Aswan Dam, you can look into the land that would have been Cush, even from there, which stands for, in some ways, the most distant land in ancient Israel. Even from there, the Lord will bring people of whom it will be said, this one was born in Zion. Well, this is exactly what happens in the New Testament. Turn once again to the book of Acts very briefly and have a look at Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8. As the gospel expands beyond Jerusalem, one of the first things we read about, and by the way, it's persecution, isn't it, that drives them out of Jerusalem, some of them. Persecution empowers the spread of the gospel in much of church history. But we find in chapter 8 from verse, uh, sorry, from verse 26 and following that Philip is one of the first to evangelize someone outside of the city of Jerusalem. And who is it that he evangelizes? It is an official, a court official, verse 27, we're told, of the queen of the Ethiopians. In other words, this man is a Cushite. He is one from Cush. 
And on the pages here of Acts chapter 8, we see the fulfillment of the promise that was held out in Psalm 87 verse 4, that these people from every nation are truly coming, not just to the city of Jerusalem, but to the Lord Jesus Christ, to the Lord and his church, to the heavenly Zion. A Cushite becomes one who is converted. This one, Psalm 87 verse 4, was born there, they say. And do you see the refrain that's repeated in verse 4, verse 5, and verse 6? This one was born there, they say, at the end of verse 4. This one and that one were born in her, in the middle of verse 5. This one was born there, at the end of verse 6. The repetition simply serves to emphasize for us that the Lord looks at these people and does not see what their birth certificate has written. It's not born in America, born in Australia, born in the UK. It is born in Zion because they are now registered in the book of life that belongs to the Lamb. In Philippians chapter 3, verse 20, we're told famously you might know this well, that we as believers have a citizenship, not in the UK, not in the US, not anywhere else, but that our citizenship is where? It's in heaven, isn't it? Our citizenship is in heaven. That on our spiritual passports is written in bold letters, citizen of heaven, by command of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is what our passport reads when we turn in faith and repentance to Jesus. When we confess our sin, when we cry out to him for salvation, knowing that we cannot be righteous in ourselves, our passport is wonderfully stamped. Citizen of heaven. Our citizenship is in heaven by faith in Christ. And as you know, citizenship brings along with it certain privileges and certain responsibilities, doesn't it? So there are certain privileges of living in the UK that I cannot access because I am here on a tier two visa. And on my visa, it says very clearly, no access to public funds. I'm not allowed any benefits. I'm allowed to be here and to work, and that's that's wonderful. But I don't have all the privileges of a UK citizen. But as a heavenly citizen, I have wonderful, full privileges in the Lord Jesus Christ, such that the Lord says, everything that's true of Christ is now true of you, Christian. He is perfectly righteous, and that righteousness counts for you. He is beloved by me, and so are you. The privileges of the Christian are the privileges of citizenship in the heavenly Zion. But also with privileges come obligations. Isn't that true? There are certain commitments and obligations that we take when we take upon ourselves citizenship. If ever I were to become a dual citizen keeping my original citizenship, but also becoming a British citizen, I will have to declare on oath allegiances and commitments to obey the laws of this United Kingdom and take an allegiance that would be new for me to the Queen or whoever would be on the throne at that point. I have to make commitments as a citizen 
And the same is true for us as Christians. When we become a Christian, we take on new commitments, new obligations. Our loyalty is no longer to a president, a prime minister, a queen, any earthly ruler, first and foremost. Yes, we submit ourselves, Romans 13, to the law of the land. But our first and foremost, our priority of loyalty is to the king of Zion, the Lord himself. And we are to follow his law as his citizens, as his people. And so maybe tonight you need to be reminded of that fact, that if you claim citizenship through the Lord Jesus in the heavenly Zion, you have obligations. You have an obligation to obey your Lord's commands. That when you open up the pages of scripture and you read, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself, then it is incumbent upon you to obey that command. Because that's who you are. You are registered as a citizen of heavenly Zion. When you read prohibitions in scripture, that you may not worship any other gods, that you cannot let your heart create and worship an idol of your own making, that you yourself are not your own God and Lord and Master, then you may not do those things because you you are a citizen whose allegiance belongs to the heavenly king. The city of Zion, the heavenly Zion, we're invited to, through the Lord Jesus Christ, to become citizens of. And if we are belonging to the Lord as his people, we have certain wonderful privileges, but we also have obligations. Now, the wonderful thing that we also see here, not only in Psalm 87, but throughout Scripture, is that unlike many places in the world just now, which for various reasons, some of them perhaps very good, are tightening up laws on immigration, right? It's very hard to move in in comparison to maybe a few decades ago in Europe or overseas if you want to travel or especially if you want to immigrate. Very stringent laws. It is very different to become a citizen of the heavenly Zion. In fact, the gates are thrown wide open. There are more than enough resources for all who would enter The only condition is to repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And you walk through that gate as a citizen, as an immigrant who can take up permanent residence in the heavenly city of Zion. And that's the vision that we need to have, brothers and sisters, as well, as we go out and invite others to join us as citizens of Zion. As we take the good news about Jesus into our workplaces, into our families, those who don't know and trust the Lord Jesus, those of you who will begin studying in this new term with your classmates, your study mates, we need to take that message, that full and free offer of the gospel, that for anyone who repents and trusts in Christ, they are most welcome to become a citizen of the heavenly kingdom, to become a citizen of Zion. Well, finally, we need to finish as we look at verse 7. And verse 7 is a wonderfully uh, odd little verse. It's puzzled commentators down through the ages. What is this little verse doing here? We've seen the city of Zion. We've seen how it is that you become a citizen of Zion. And now we read verse 7. Singers and dancers alike say, all my springs are in you. I'm suggesting this holds out a vision for us of what it's like to celebrate as a citizen of Zion. What it's like to celebrate in Zion. All my springs 
are in you. I don't think it's any accident as we think about uh, this stream of thought running from Genesis to Revelation that where God dwells in intimate fellowship with his people to be worshipped is a garden, it's a city, it's a temple, it's set on a mountain, it is Zion in the very presence of God. I don't think it's any accident that we're told in Genesis 2 of the springs that burst forth in Genesis 2.10 in Eden. Now you might say, hang on, that's squeezing an awful lot out of a text that's talking about water in the Garden of Eden. Well, hang with me and let me see if I can't persuade you that actually when we speak of springs of water flowing from that place where God dwells in his glorious presence, that we're not just talking about any ordinary water. Psalm 36, verses 8 and 9, tell us, uh, give us a nice and helpful perspective on what this language of springs in the temple, in God's presence, indicate. Psalm 36, 8 and 9, says that God's people feast on the abundance of his house. You give them drink from the river of your delights, for with you is the fountain of life. In your light... Do we see light? Do you see, when you dwell in the presence of God, it's as if there is a fountain of water, springs of water bursting forth with life and blessing and peace that the Lord wants to give to you as his child. Springs of water bursting forth. That's why in verse 7 of our psalm, singers and dancers in this procession up to the temple say, All my springs are in you, Yahweh. All my springs are found in you, Lord. They're rejoicing because they know that in God's presence is true life. The water of life pours forth in the presence of God. And again, isn't that exactly what we see the Lord Jesus teaching us? In John, once again, the Gospel of John, if we turn to chapter 12, uh, sorry, uh, John chapter 8, And I won't go there just now for the sake of time, but you can maybe mark this place as one to meditate on. A wonderful text where Jesus reveals himself, not only John 4, but also John 8, talking about where Jesus is found. There is the true temple, and there is where springs of water, the water of life, burst forth. If you want to have life and have it abundantly, spiritual life, deep and abiding life, eternal life, then you go to Jesus. And when you go to Jesus, then you become a citizen who celebrates, saying, all my springs are found in you. We come to the heavenly Zion, and we rejoice because there we have found life, spiritual life. Though we were dead in our sins and transgressions, God has made us alive with the water of life offered in our Lord Jesus Christ. And so we should rejoice. We should be filled with joy. We should experience what Romans chapter 5 speaks of when it says that the Holy Spirit pours out. Do you see the liquid metaphor there? Pours out the love of God into our very hearts. We rejoice because we are counted as citizens of the heavenly Zion. So the citizens of Zion celebrate in the city of their God. That's what Psalm 87 holds out to us this evening. And the joy that those singers and dancers of verse 7 experienced as they came into the presence of God in the temple on Jerusalem so many ages ago is nothing compared to our joy as we come into the presence of God through the Lord Jesus Christ, knowing that we have 
forgiveness for our sins, knowing that we have life abundant, knowing that we have all we need to live as citizens of the heavenly Zion. Let's pray.